Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It's Kit Chapman joining you today and um, bringing along Charlie for the ride. Charlie, we've got an amazing guest. Who do we have and what are they going to be talking about? We have today Jesse Childs, who is the award-winning author of God's Traitors and Henry VIII's Last Victim, as well as writing and reviewing for several national newspapers. You might have seen her in the BAFTA-nominated Elizabeth I's Secret Agents and the rather, frankly, excellent Charles I Downfall of a King. And we're really happy to have her with us today to discuss her latest book, The Siege of Loyalty House. Hello, Jessie. How are you? Hello. I am great. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, we are really excited to have you. And I, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed this book, um, which you were kind enough to send me a copy of. So, I guess we should begin with the gushing praise. In the Siege of Loyalty House, you tell the story of the Civil War pretty much from start to finish in the most riveting cinematic style. So when can we expect this to be on our TV screens? Um, Was it important to you to get your readers excited about this often neglected bit of our history? Ah, well, two two tough questions there. Um, Watch this space, I guess, with movies and telly. I think there's quite a momentum and quite a zeitgeist now, which is um, about bloody time, really, uh, <laughs> about the 17th century. We've been, for a long time, we've been trying to lure people away from Henry VIII's cod piece, and um, <laughs> it might just be happening. But I have to say, I never get too excited about um, telly and movies unless they actually you know, are on your screen, because I've had a few near misses. I had with my last book, God's Traitors, which was about the persecuted Catholics in the reign of Elizabeth I. And uh, I had, you know, J.J. Abrams' company, Bad Robot. They were really excited to the extent that sort of we, I was having phone calls, uh, L.A. time and telling my kids to put themselves to bed because Hollywood was calling and, yeah, we go to Hollywood. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then Bad Robot made Star Wars and, and they didn't make God's Traitors. So um, I, <laughs> I've oh. learned to just sort of, you know, stay cool about these things. Um, but I think it should be on the telly I think 
especially now, the 17th century, it is a time again, you know, now of war in Europe, of Puritanism, of populism, of culture wars, uh, a polarizing new media, climate change, of course, it was the mini ice age, uh, the little ice age in the 17th century, and, and Brexit, uh, huge parallels there as well. So I think um, it seems to me like sort of the moment. And also, if you look at, I don't know, something like Game of Thrones, all those fantastical supernatural elements, that is very 17th century. You have um, Prince Rupert's dog boy, uh, which, which the parliamentarians thought was a sort of demon, like his dark materials, uh, Philip Pullman's dark materials. But actually, of course, he took that line from Milton, John Milton. Um, you have witches flying over the Battle of Newbury. You have witch hunts in East Anglia. You have, you actually almost have the equivalent of White Walkers fighting the Battle of Edge Hill. Um, again, Edge Hill was the first major big battle of the Civil War. And afterwards, um, shepherds thought they saw the spectres, the ghosts of the soldiers fighting again. And they went to the village, terrified, white with fear. And the villagers just said, oh, you're, you're drunk, you're mad. But then they heard the sounds that night. And, and it was taken so seriously by Charles I that he sent uh, a team of sort of ghostbusters to investigate. And they heard and saw these white walkers, too. So um, I think it's, it's really ripe for that kind of treatment if someone was, was bold and brave enough. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm still not over boy, by the way. <laughs> Thanks for bringing up boy. Poor boy. <laughs> Poor boy. Being killed at the Battle of Marston Moor. And it, was it in a cornfield? or No, it was, a, it was a bean field, wasn't it, I think? I think it was about well, 3,000 men died and one dog. <laughs> well, as someone who has been hanging around Henry VIII's codpiece probably a bit too long, <laughs> um, this, this sort of draws you in because it's a very different approach to telling the story of the English Civil War than most people will be familiar with. You know, you're not opening in the Palace of Westminster, you are opening at the top of Snow Hill in Farringdon. Um, and you introduce a very different cast of characters than the standard, you know, the ones that everyone trots out, as we've mentioned, you know, you've got Prince Rupert and, and um, Oliver Cromwell, things like that. So tell us, whose story are you telling and why did you choose them? I'm telling the story of one regiment that fought at Basing House, which is near Basingstoke in Hampshire. It's a royalist garrison. And that is the loyalty house of the title of my book. But they were Londoners, this regiment. They were known as the London Regiment. And they really didn't want war. I mean, hardly anyone did. Um, And they campaigned and petitioned for peace. And they really just wanted to get on with their lives. There was an apothecary called Thomas Johnson, who was the first man to sell bananas in London. Uh, And he drew them. So we've got a picture of them. There's a sort of peaky blinder kind of merchant colonizer called Marmaduke Rawdon. There is an engraver called William Faithorne, who was just a stunning talent. Uh, He survived. So a lot of his work you you can see. Um, There was a print seller. There was a vintner. There were all these types of people, and a lot of them lived in this one street, Snow Hill, as you mentioned, where Thomas Johnson put up his bananas for sale. And so I was looking at the poll tax records, and you can see through them exactly who was in whose household. Um, And 
how close to each other they lived. And so they really did cluster around sort of Hoban Conduit um, and the River Fleet, and they're just below Smithfield. So by piecing together various London records, you can really get a sense of the sights and the smells and what it was really like on that street before the war. And that's what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to be really immersive and almost sort of cinematic without making a single thing up, you know, using the, the sources. Um, and almost that sort of anthropological term of, of sort of deep hanging out. You sort of want to hang out with these characters so much until you can um, really follow them on the ground, so to speak. Um, and then I think it makes the whole, well, the, the whole excitement, the thriller of the build up to war uh, much more vivid, but also the tragedy later. Um, and, and especially someone like Thomas Johnson, he was, I just loved him, actually. He, he was not just an apothecary and a banana seller. He was a plant hunter. He was a botanist. And any time he had any free time, uh, he would get on a boat with his mates and he would um, go to all these places and look for new plants. I mean, so much so that he climbed Mount Snowden to look for plants. And I get with him very much this sort of fizzing joy of life, the furious joy of life, as, uh, as Vasily Grossman puts it in Life and Fate. You know, he feels so very, very alive. And, um, well, I won't spoil what happens to him, but it's, uh, it certainly makes you sort of walk with him. It's a wonderful way of approaching the story because you do, knowing the characters, you do care if they live or die. Good, good. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I think that's, that's really what I'm trying to do is, is um, sort of revivify some of these people and, and get a sense of what it was actually like to be there, to experience this, to, to, you know, we say civil war, we say revolution, we say republic, but we need to sort of really look at what that actually meant. Um, and on Snow Hill, Snow Hill was, was the road where the prisoners from Newgate were taken down on the hurdles um, to their execution at Tyburn. Um, so it's, it's this extraordinary sort of juxtaposition between everyday life and yet sort of blood and guts. And you have very um, fanatical preachers as well. There was a preacher called Hugh Peter, um, Hugh Peter, Puritan preacher. He sounds like a character from Viz. Um, and he was <laughs> preaching in St. Sepulchre's Church, which was in that parish. And so, you've, you know, you can hear it, all this sort of furious sounds and debates and, and, and the violence that then happens at the end of 1641 that, that leads up to the king then uh, fleeing London and, and the civil war beginning. So as the war does get started in earnest at Edge Hill, your very human storytelling does start to come into its own, shall we say. My Lord Mayor, my Lord Fart is perhaps one of the greatest battlefield insults ever. So where did you find this earthy language? And how, how did it help you create a fight we can invest in emotionally? Well, I think that's one of those ageless things, isn't it? Scatology and, and, and toilet humour. Um, they were really scatological in, in the early modern period. And you find it all over the place. I mean, certainly in ballads, there was... There was um, a regimental captain who was mustering in London uh, just before they left to fight. 
and uh, a musket went off and he shat himself. And <laughs> there was a ballad all about it, about, you know, the, the foul disaster of his arse. Um, and uh, on it went. And, and this poor guy Atkins was, was known as Beshitten Atkins for the rest of his life. But what you find in the Victorian calendars and abstracts of the state papers, they cut these bits out. So they will just put one little line saying a facetious verse. <laughs> and so you, you have to go to the manuscripts to look it all up. Um, you get a lot of the language in the newsletters of the time as well. I mean, this is this is the beginning of newspapers, um, collapse of censorship at the end of 1641 and the beginning of newspapers. So so my Lord Mayor, my Lord Fart was uh, someone abusing the new uh, Puritan radical Lord Mayor of London. Um, and uh, that was his way of, of saying he wasn't interested in him. And, and they would, they would. I mean, it's not just ballads and, and newsletters. It's also in it's sort of quite genteel records, like um, the Court of Chivalry documents. And in there, um, it's sort of looking at who's insulting who and, and whose gentility is being besmirched. So there was one chap who was um, uh, who was called Fat Guts, double T with both of them, which I love with the, the original spelling. Um, and then he rounded on apothecary saying that uh, he lived by the turds and farts of gentlemen. <laughs> so, so on it goes. So, but I love that this is, you have that language, very earthy, um, but it's also the time of Shakespeare and Milton and what you think of as very elevated language. And actually, you know, they, they dovetail all the time. If you look also in the previous century, people like Martin Luther, Thomas More, very scatological as well. So I think uh, if we want to hear their voices, we have to use that kind of language as well. I totally agree. And as History Hacks resident pervert, uh, <laughs> I am a huge fan of this stuff. Um, and while we're being very History Hack and getting into all the rude bits, uh, tell us about the differences between the battle standards that you get from the, the Puritan parliamentarians and the, the bit naughty royalists. Yes. So these are very, very important because they don't really have uniforms at this stage. Um, they all are wearing their buff coats and some companies might have certain colours. But in the melee of a big, big battle, what you're looking for to identify your own side are the standards, these big flags that are carried um, either by the ensigns on foot or the smaller cornets carried by um, uh, the cornets of the horse troops. And so they identify each company and uh, troop. And what's great about them from a historian's point of view is that you can see through, it's usually an emblem and a motto, and you can see through them what at least the the captain and uh, the colonel of each regiment is 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 sort of thinking what his motivation is. So for the parliamentarians, you get a lot of uh, religious stuff, you know, God with us, or um, stuff about you know the supreme law of God um, and things like that. You have William Rainbow, who um, his was a picture of uh, the executed Charles the First actually, and his was um, the health of the people is the supreme law. But then with the royalists, they're, yeah, they're a little bit more salty, a little bit more satirical. Not always. Um, a lot of them go on about honour. But there was one, and we don't have a picture of it, but it was described, um, that was uh, a naked sword and an erect penis. And the motto was ready to use both, which actually, when you think about it, is, is pretty horrific because he's making sort of rape threats, really. 
Um, there was also a lot of the royalists, I think there were about five, that mocked the, um, the Earl of Essex, the Lord General of the Parliamentarian Forces, as uh, a cuckold. His wives, both his previous wives, had been unfaithful to him. So there was a lot uh, of pictures of him wearing the cuckold's horns at the time. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of insult and uh, a lot of motivation as well. So very interesting. I kind of love this because, I mean, you see this very similarly in the, in the American Civil War when there isn't the standard uniforms of the blue and the grey and everyone's just kind of wearing whatever they can. And so they're trying to, they're trying to sort of individually say something about who they are, you know, as, as people. And I guess this is, this is sort of the, the pike and shot kind of era, isn't it? They're sort of marching in these big units. Yeah. Um, and do we get these, uh, I mean, I've seen that cartoon, you know, to him, poodle, bite him, pepper, that kind of, is, is that sort of very common in the literature of the era too? Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. And that's the sort of, caricature of the roundheads and the cavaliers um cavalier was originally a sort of almost a complimentary term for someone being chivalric a chevalier um but it came to be seen at the end of 1641 as a sort of pejorative term for a sort of ruthless dandified cruel popish cavalier uh, you know king supporter a royalist and then you have the roundheads um and so in that cartoon, the, the roundhead dog has shorter hair. And that's sort of uh, taken from the, the short cropped hairstyles of the apprentices who were seen to represent um, the parliamentarians. Um, that's a bit of a generalisation, of course, because you had, you had a lot of aristocratic generals in the parliamentarian army. But that, that, that cartoon is, is uh, very pervasive. And um, neither side liked their nickname, but they, it certainly stuck right, right to this age, which is kind of amazing. And it actually going back to the battlefield, it wasn't just the standards, because you're right, it was, it was almost impossible to identify. So what they would also do is that they would have a little code word, um, maybe something like God with us. But the problem, uh, certainly at one battle, the Battle of Cheriton, both sides had God with us as their code word, <laughs> which is not good. Uh, they would also put um, maybe sprigs of um, plant or some leaves in their hats, or they might wear um, different coloured handkerchiefs or scarves on their arms um, or around their waists. Uh, again, that, that was um, quite cool with the siege of Basing House because um, after the second siege, which was this horrible, long, brutal blockade, and eventually um, the garrison was saved, but they were saved by this um, small group, uh, the special operation really, from Oxford, and they were royalists, but they wore tawny orange silk scarves around, around their um, arms just to it's a dupe the enemy so if anyone saw them they'd think they were parliamentarians so it's yeah it's, it's very cool all that stuff it's um awful when you realize that everything we we think and we take for granted was a victorian lie that that you had these very clearly delineated sides of the the dashing cavaliers with their long flowing hair all handsome and gorgeous and then then the you know the baddies with short hair and very dour faces but it but it, to find out it's not like that at all you just can't can't fathom trying to fight a war like that I know it's ridiculous if you, if you look at someone like the the Earl of Warwick who was um one of the the chief parliamentarians of the junta and it, you, know, you look at portraits of him and he's covered in red silks and very <laughs> very dandified um so yeah as with all these stereotypes there is sort of some truth in it if you look at the puritan churchmen uh, they are quite dour looking and they've got their you know black and white and they're 
lawn collars. But um, yeah, no, it's, it, it is a very crude generalization. And actually what I found with Basing House and with the wider war as well is that you get a lot of internal clashes um, between regiments. So at Basing House, there was the owner of the house was the Marquis of Winchester. And he was, I suppose you would think of as more the sort of cavalier type with the long hair and the slightly jowly and he's lived a good life. Um, and he's wearing a very frilly collar. Um, and then uh, next to him, I have it in my books, it's a juxtaposition because I love the difference. You have Marmaduke Rawdon, who was the, uh, the Peaky Blinder merchant head of the London Regiment. And he is um, Protestant and he, uh, whereas the Marquis was Catholic. Um, and he has very sharp cheekbones, this cold, piercing, grey-eyed stare. And he's wearing the stiff, starchy lawn collar. Um, and you would think maybe looking at that, that, that he would be a Puritan, but, but not a bit of it. So it's, yeah, it's, it's fun to look at the tensions between the regiments as well. And again, with the parliamentarians between, for example, the Earl of Manchester and, and Cromwell. That's now, that's a great story for another time. Um, but back to Loyalty House, Basing House. Where was Loyalty House? Who was there? And why is its story important? It was uh, near Basingstoke, and I call it Loyalty House because that's what they called it. It was uh, a nickname after the motto of the owner, the Marquis of Winchester. The motto was Love Loyalty. And it was enormous. People were really daunted by the size of it. They said it was as big as the Tower of London. And in the Tudor period, it had been a big favourite with the monarchs. So Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn had gone there um, on that famous progress that took in Wolf Hall. Uh, Mary and Philip of Spain had their honeymoon there. Elizabeth I visited loads of times, loved it. Um, and then you get to the fifth Marquis of Winchester in the Stuart period, who is the defender of Basing House. And um, he, you get the impression that he would have much preferred to have stayed out of the war if he could help it at all. But a big house like that is a weapon in war, whether you like it or not. Um, so he makes it a, a royalist garrison. And it's quite useful strategically because it's 40 miles or so south of Oxford, where the king is based. And then it's about 50 miles southwest of London, where Parliament uh, has its headquarters. So strategically, it's quite good um, as a stronghold, as a stopping point, as a communications hub, and also um, because it commands the main road out to the west. So the royalists and the garrison could sally out and really disturb parliamentarian trade and traffic, which was very important uh, for supply lines and uh, just getting the money back into London and cloth and stuff. Um, so it became, it was important strategically, but what, what sort of happened with it, partly because of these people who ended up there, partly also because it was Catholic. Um, most royalists were Protestants, but, but this one was, sort of, was known as a limb of Babylon. It was a papist stronghold. Although, as I say, Marmaduke Rawdon was not Catholic, but the reputation was that it was entirely papist. Um, and people like Inigo Jones went there, the great architect, who was very much an exalter of the Stuart dynasty. So you sort of have artists and architects and actors. And so it is seen very much as a symbol of royalist defiance. And the parliamentarians think they're going to be able to take it down easily. Um, and so a bit like Mariupol, I suppose, you know, it didn't roll over. So the longer it held out, the more it became this, this sort of, for the royalists, this talismanic um, 
thing. And for the parliamentarians, this, this you know, devil siege that they, they had to destroy. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Gosh. I mean, that sounds awesome. Uh, and when we're talking about siege warfare at this time, obviously... We're kind of entering the age of cannons and things like that. Um, and of course, famously, Humpty Dumpty was, was a, a sheer cannon during the, the Civil War as well. Mm-hmm. So what did a 17th century Civil War siege actually look like? Is this a, a full envelopment of the people surrounding it with wooden stakes, all that kind of stuff? What kind of new tech were they taking advantage of at the time? That's a really good question. And yeah, it's a sort of shorthand that I call the book The Siege of Loyalty House, because what it really is, is the assault, the blockade, and the storming of Basing House, but that's too many words. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, if you look at siege, the word siege, it comes from the Latin sedere, to sit down. And the second, the blockade of Basing House was really this, what you think of as a classic siege, which is when, as you say, a besieging army surrounds a house and um, tries to cut it off, cuts off communications, cuts off food and drink, and tries to starve it into surrendering and they very very nearly succeeded um but then you also had so the first phase was actually an assault so there are sort of if you look back at medieval times as well there there are sort of only so many ways you can take a house um you can either batter it into submission you can starve it into submission um you can trick it possibly um or just you know assault it with with lots of people and scaling ladders and get up that way and and that the first attack was like that um the parliamentarian general William Waller he was known as William the Conqueror Waller he'd done very well in the war and he was the one who thought oh, it'll roll over he called it a slight piece and actually the garrison just put up this incredible resistance and even the women were throwing down rocks from above they were stripping lead from the roof to turn them into musket balls um and there were snipers in the house who were picking off the attackers and um the attackers actually took the outhouses they took the barn but then the royalists sallied out a small group including our apothecary thomas johnson and set fire to uh the stores there so a lot of the parliamentarians burnt to death um there was also the petard failed. So a petard is like a bomb that you clamp onto a wall or a gate. And the idea is that you light the fuse uh, and then make a run for it. Uh, and if you're not quick enough, it'll go off and you'll be hoist by your own petard. Um, but that failed. The scaling ladders were too short. So everything went wrong for Waller. So he failed in that. Then you have the blockade. And then, and then the third phase was um, this dreadful storming, this brutal storming 
by Oliver Cromwell, who by then was Lieutenant General of the New Model Army. So in terms of um, the difference between medieval and uh, early modern sieges, some features are very much the same. But the big difference is with artillery. Um, You have the so-called military revolution. You have much heavier and, and more mobile as well, more flexible artillery. So what used to work in the medieval period, sort of high, tall stone walls are, are just, and towers are hopeless against this artillery. What you need are low, thick, earthen walls. And that's why Basinghouse also was so good, because they had a lot of that going on. It was completely surrounded by these thick walls that could swallow cannonballs. And also um, the, the subsoil at Basinghouse was clay. So it was, it was really good at, at sort of absorbing the impact of this artillery. So that was the big difference. There was also um, something called granados. It comes from the Latin, not Latin, sorry, the Spanish for pomegranate. And um, they were effectively uh, sort of metal mortar shells. And inside you would put gunpowder, but also stone and nails and pitch and combustible things. Uh, there was even talk at one point of, of putting arsenic inside as well. Um, and they would be lobbed over in, in these sort of mortar guns, which are very um, short barreled and squat. And they were sort of aerial and they could uh, surmount Basing's heights. And they absolutely shredded nerves because people inside never knew, you know, whether they would get them, where they could be safe. Gosh, I mean, you, you're talking almost kind of chemical warfare being threatened at one point there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Basinghouse was kind of um, novel with that because they, they talked about filling the Granado shells with arsenic, which they didn't do. But what they did do just before Cromwell came to storm the house, they softened it up beforehand by saturating hay bales with arsenic and sulfur and then trying to direct the smoke into the house. And you have to remember there are women and children in there as well. It's a civilian refuge as well as a military stronghold. And their justification for this was because they were papists, because in the eyes of the Puritans, they were subhuman. They were worshippers of the beast. And there's this really quite horrific um, militant sermon that was preached. We have it. It survives. It was preached before um, the stormy of the house. It's called More Sulphur for Basing. And it likened um, the men, women and children inside the house to the Midianites, the old idolatrous tribes of the Bible, and said that they should be smashed like a potter's pot and their destruction should be terrible and it should be total and it should be timely. And um, that kind of language really sort of galvanized the soldiers. And also with Cromwell, um, the night before he stormed the house, he was praying to um, Psalm 115, and that was all about idolaters again, people who worship the beast. Um, and so he, it sort of says they have mouths. He's talking about statues, religious statues. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. And it goes on like that until the middle, where it goes, um, those that worship them are like unto them. In other words, you know, people who worship statues are like statues. And therefore, they are subhuman and they can be destroyed. And it's, it's some of these psalms and these, um, these sermons, they're so, they're so militant. And they, they're almost like a drumbeat 
Yeah, it's very rhythmical as well. You know, they that make them alike unto them. And, and sort of, oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. You know, he is their help and their shield. And you can just see and feel how the ordinary foot soldier is galvanized by this um, into a killing machine. So I, 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 I think one of my great missions in life is to try and show people that religion is really not boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I think maybe that's sort of going back to sort of the Stuart period, 17th century, it's one of the, possibly one of the reasons why people are a bit sort of freaked out by the 17th century, or a bit put off because they think oh, it was all about religion and theology. But um, I think it's, it's, it, it's the power of the drumbeat. It's militant uh, religion and it's fascinating. I couldn't agree. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. Um, what, what do we know about the conditions inside Basing House? Because now I'm thinking about all these all these people the ordinary people just living inside a house effectively what was it like there as the siege dragged on could they come and go could they communicate with the outside world could they restock yeah yeah it de- it depended it's a really good question it depended what phase you're looking at so most of the time um it wasn't completely encircled and then you could come and go you could get messages in and out you could get supplies from oxford um, but during the middle siege the main one really the blockade and that wasn't completely encircled because there was a river on the north side so it was quite marshy there so it's the one place where the besiegers couldn't camp um, but otherwise it was completely surrounded and there were um trenches put in and um the idea was to starve them to death. And at that point, there were real problems. They ran out of beer. They ran out of salt. They ran out of wheat. Um, they had a well, so they had water, but it was very sort of puddly water. Mm. Um, and there's a siege diary. We have this amazing record almost day by day. And it's, it's extraordinary. It's written by someone inside the house. We don't know who. But it's so dispassionate. You know, it sort of says, on this day, we lost two guns. On this day, five people ran away. On this day, we caught a deserter and hung him up in front of everyone to, you know, to ward them off from doing the same thing. On this day, five women were killed by a piece of artillery. Um, and you'll read it and you're just like, God, oh, where's your emotion? But I, I think it's probably the only way you can chronicle this at that moment. And I sort of, that's one of the other things I really wanted to do with this book was almost write a sort of Stalingrad for, for the Civil War. And I, and I started to slightly despair and think that's just not the way they, they wrote or thought. You know, you don't get emotions. The, um, the, the historian Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens and all those amazing blockbusting books, was a 17th century military historian before. And his argument was that you don't really get what he calls... Um, uh, flesh witness accounts mm. until about the mid 18th century and what he means by that is uh, people would be eyewitnesses they would say what they saw but they wouldn't necessarily talk about what they felt and I certainly found that with a lot of the sources but then 
I found this unassuming little book called Meditations Upon a Siege. And it was written by a churchman, an Anglican churchman called Humphrey Peake. And um, for loads of uh, reasons I go into in the book, I'm pretty sure he was at Basing House. And I think that I think three people have sort of picked up on it. uh, And only one person has written an MA thesis about it. The other two are sort of throwaway lines. And I think the reason is because it sort of looks like a book of sermons or meditations and it, it would be fired under sort of just devotional literature. But what it really is, is an account of what it is like to be in a siege in the, sixth, in the 17th century, uh, in the Civil War. Um, and it's very dark. And he goes into the bowels of a garrison like nothing else. He talks about nerves being shredded, about being cut off from your loved ones and they being cut off from you and what a living hell that is. He talks about not being able to sleep, not being able to rest. He talks about people, people screaming around him. And um, it really is a flesh witness account. You know, it really does convey the trauma that he's going through. And by the end of that blockade, which is finally lifted by this special operation that I was talking about from Oxford, um, the colonel of that, Henry Gage, wrote a letter to Prince Rupert. And he said, you know, described what a terrible state the garrison was in when he found them. And, you know, they'd, they'd run out of shoes and they looked like skeletons and they were starving. Um, someone else said they looked more like prisoners of the grave than keepers of the castle. And they were also on the verge of mutiny. So um, after that blockade, sort of all the tensions um, are sort of, come out and the London regiment, the Protestants within the house are actually expelled. King Charles I um, orders them out. So you get a sense of, you know, real tension and, and friction going on alongside, you know, issues about rations and, and what they call useless mouths, the old people, the women and the children, um, and who has more in each regiment. The Marcus of Winchester complained that Rawdon had too many in his regiment, and Rawdon retorted that uh, the Marcus of Winchester had three for one in his. Um, and there's also uh, uh, this amazing family history that I found in, in Hertfordshire Record Office uh, about the Rawdon family. And Rawdon at one point said to the Marcus of Winchester, you have in the house good store of good wine and good store of good tobacco. Pray let me have some of it for my men. And then for as long as there is a horse, a dog, a cat or a rat or anything that is edible, we will never surrender. But it also, you know, it's quite a fun anecdote, but it also gives you a sense of, of one regiment having wine or at least the officers, you know, having wine and cigarettes and, and, and pipes and the others, uh, you know, having shorter rations and, and doing without so you can imagine the sort of the type of friction going on in there plus deserters plus this fear of spies all the time the marcus of winchester's one of his brothers um was bribed we think by uh waller um and very nearly surrendered the house um and he was in the end he was discovered and he was court-martialed so there's all this distrust going on as well and they have their own justice system inside as well don't they well they do it in the sense yes that um if you were caught deserting you would be you would be strung up on the gibbet um each garrison has its its own sort of forms of punishment the punishment horse you can see in old engravings of various sieges a sort of wooden punishment horse that um 
people would be tied to and strapped to and have to sort of, a bit like a pillory, I suppose, sit there. Um, and yes, the, the Marcus of Winchester's brother was actually sent to Oxford for a, for a proper court-martial. Um, it's pretty amazing, actually, that he wasn't executed um, because he clearly had betrayed the house. But I think the Marquis um, begged Charles um, to save him, and he did. And there's one theory that he was sent back into the garrison to be the hangman um, for any other deserters. And th- th- we only have one piece of evidence for that, but it's, it's at the final storm when some, some of the garrison were taken prisoner. One name for the, the prisoners was uh, Paulette the hangman. So it's possible. Well, we're sort of reaching the end of the siege here. And I mean, it's been fascinating. It's, I didn't realise it was essentially the Civil War's Stalingrad or Mariupol or you know, the 800 for China, things like that. It became this iconic moment. So we've talked about several different phases. How long does the siege last and how does it end? You mentioned Oliver Cromwell turning up. Yes. Yes, on iron sides comes in the end. It's um, the length of the siege. I mean, it is those three phases, so it's on and off, but it's uh, all in for over two years. And uh, the final storm happens on the 14th of October, 1645. So we're talking about after the Battle of Naseby, which with hindsight we can see is the decisive battle that wins it for the parliamentarians, but they didn't know that then. Um, it's also after the fall of Bristol, which was very important in September, again, falls to the new model army. The new model army is the sort of the leaner, meaner, keener fighting machine that has been set up the previous winter. And uh, partly it comes out of that, that tension between Cromwell and Manchester that we were talking about. And, and it becomes more meritocratic, the army, and, and better regulated, better supplied um, and more religious as well. I mean, they are, they're high on God as well as being high on victory. And when they come to Basinghouse, they have not lost the battle. And so their morale is sky high. And there are probably about, I think there are about 7,000 um, surrounding the house to about three, 400 inside the garrison. So, and also that they, they've been softened up by this sort of early modern chemical warfare, as we mentioned. And there are also some great big breaches that uh, have been made in the walls by the heavy artillery. So the garrison really had no chance. And even though they had put up this heroic, symbolic, incredible resistance, in the end, it took less than an hour to take it down. Um, And I sort of liken it to a column of army ants the parliamentarians, they just sprawled over the house and destroyed everything in their wake. And um, so quite a lot of the characters that we've been sort of living with all the way through um, die. There's, a, there's an actor who um, used to tread the boards, uh, the cockpit theatre in Drury Lane, and he is uh, cut down by one of the parliamentarian officers called Thomas Harrison, Major Thomas Harrison. And, and the story goes that as he killed him, he said, cursed be he who doeth the Lord of the work negligently. Uh, may or may not be true. It's certainly in keeping with Harrison's character. Sounds very much like him. It does, doesn't it? Um, and yeah, so you get a lot of people are, are killed. Actually, quite a lot of the defenders hide. They hide in the vaults and the priest holes and the tunnels of the house. And it's always been thought that they burnt to death because um, later on a fireball takes hold of the house and it, it goes up in flames. I actually found three separate accounts in London newsletters uh, that said that, that two days later, 
the ones who were hiding crept out of their holes and survived. So at least there's a slightly happy ending for them. Um, and then it's a case, some of the officers are taken prisoner. So it wasn't quite the massacre that it's sometimes portrayed to be. It's sometimes talked about as the sort of precursor for, for Droida and Wetsford in Ireland. Um, I mean, in the sense of the, the fanatical religious fury directed at the house, that's true. But it wasn't a full-on massacre. Um, some of those who weren't taken prisoner um, were, were, were cut down horrifically and, and, and were given no quarter at all. There were pockets of resistance in each of the rooms of the house, this, this mansion house. And uh, in one of them, there were seven or eight women who were taken prisoner. And Hugh Peter, our, our Puritan preacher, who is reporting on all of this, really with a lot of relish, he said, um, our soldiers treated them somewhat, somewhat coarsely, but not uncivilly. We left them with some clothes upon them, which is uh, pretty horrid. Um, picture. There was one woman who was killed. She was the daughter of a churchman and she was trying to stop the soldiers from killing her father. So they killed her instead. Um, and some of her, I tracked down one of her sisters who was only 10 years old at the time. She survived, uh, thank God. Um, and Inigo Jones, the great architect, who was 72 years old at this point, he was stripped of his clothes, which was a, a privilege of plunder at the time. And he was wrapped in a blanket and he was carried out. And then, yeah, as I say, the house uh, was either set on fire or, or a fireball accidentally smouldered and then uh, went up into flames. Hard to tell for sure. Um, but yes, two days later, some of them crept out and survived. But it was seen as this, this, this huge moment. And even though the, the war had effectively been won, it, you know, it carried on for another six months until Charles I surrendered himself to the Scots and then ordered his outstanding garrisons to surrender. But it was seen with the news at the fall of Basinghouse when it was heard in Oxford, it was said uh, that they sort of groaned and cried as if they'd lost their gods. Um, whereas for the parliamentarians, it was just yet another sign that God was very much on their side. And one of the preachers had said about Basinghouse, hear religion and laws and liberties and the very being of our nation lie at stake. So for them, it is this wonderful sort of tick from God again, that they are doing the right thing and that they have providence on their side. I think it's probably just important to reiterate something. So that we're talking about Oliver Cromwell, who is seen by many as you know one of the greatest Britons of all time, etc. Um, regardless of what anyone might think of him, we're talking about war crimes here. You know, we're talking about, you know, burning people to death. We're talking about massacring, uh, you know, civilians. We're talking about killing a girl who was trying to defend her father. This, this is a war crime. Well, it, 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 it's tricky, that one, uh, in fairness. The burning, um, the parliamentarians said it was an accidental fire and they tried to pull them out, but they couldn't get to them. Yeah, so that's tricky. And also, uh, you do have to look a little bit at the laws of war, the laws of, of siege warfare at this time. Nothing is, is um, explicitly codified, but there was, and this is the argument about Druida and Wetsford as well, there is uh, this sort of convention that if you summon a garrison to surrender, which Basinghouse was many times, you know, going back from 1643 on to 1645, each time they tried to attack it, they would put a summons of surrender in and the Marcus of Winchester turned every single one down. If 
the besieging army is forced to storm a house, then they have every right to provide no quarter. And that was sort of accepted. And in fairness to a besieging army, it's absolute hell, especially during a blockade, to camp outside a garrison. You know, they, they're sort of on marshy ground. The weather was atrocious a lot of the time. Um, they're just in sort of makeshift tents. They haven't got very good food supplies either. So a lot of them are dying of disease um, and all sorts of horrible things like dysentery. Um, there were smallpox as well. And to make a besieging army storm a house, you know, to go up on scaling ladders and to overrun a house and to fight it out to the last is to put your men at serious risk. No one wanted to, to storm a house. You know, usually what would happen with garrisons is that they wouldn't surrender immediately, but after a little bit of a bombardment, they would then come to terms. And usually the garrison would be allowed to march out with their flags flying and their drums going. Um, and because the Marcus of Winchester held out to the ultimate, um, so his men and his garrison, and indeed, yes, the civilians inside, um, received the ultimate justice, as the parliamentarians would see it. So to us, it looks like war crimes, but to them, it was justified and justified by God. Gosh, I mean, Jesse, thank you so much for coming on and telling us this story because and you've you've brought it to life for us today in exactly the same way as you do in the book it is guys get yourself a copy of the siege of loyalty house it's available now um it's such a cracking read jesse thank you so much for coming and joining us oh thank you for having me it's been it's been a great pleasure team 17th century for the win right absolutely let's have more films more books I've actually got, I know we're not recording this, but I'll show you guys. Robert Harris's Act of Oblivion, the proof has just come through. Oh Look at my, that. No, we are going, we are putting that out because I don't <laughs> think everyone should hear how envious I am. You should have that fire and nice. <laughs> it's Game of Thrones, kids. It is, it is. Or is it that way around? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I am going to be interviewing Robert Harris about his book. I think that's the day before his publication, so it'll be on the 31st of August. That hung Hungerford books if you're anyone anywhere near Hungerford um but that's very exciting because his books tend to be adapted to the screen as well so fingers crossed this is all fantastic oh and Tarbo Stuck as well I'm very excited about his musical and you had him on didn't you we did we've had him on to talk about 50 days if you want to listen back please look it up guys it's a brilliant musical it's the British Hamilton it is, it is. And I, I'm really excited about that. I think that's that's going places. And that is what we need to get young people in. Exactly. That's the message. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Okay, right. I'm just going to stop. Brilliant. Thank you so much. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 